Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. Oregonians are facing an extreme shortage of housing across the state. We have one of the lowest supplies of rentals that are affordable to people who are living at or below the poverty line, and we also rank fourth in the country when it comes to underproducing housing. And although researchers say there really isn't a quick fix here, there are efforts underway to help reduce the strain. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with OPB News Editor April Ehrlich about how we got here and why the future of housing in Portland could be co-housing. It's Tuesday, September 5th. I'm John Notariani, in for Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. April, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. I understand that you have completely figured out the solution to housing in Oregon. So let's just go right to it. What's the solution, April? How are we going to fix it? That's hilarious, because (laughs) when I was assigned this story, um, it was assigned to me as a solutions journalism piece. And that was a question my editor kept asking me, which was, so what's what's the solution? What do we do? And I'm like, <laughs> you want me to answer this right now? <laughs> it's a cool series that, you, that you've been doing at OPB, you and your colleagues. But I mean, I think one of the other ones was about like drug addiction in, in Oregon. If you guys come out of this and have the solutions to all of these problems, I, I will be very impressed. That would... <laughs> yeah, they're like very... Uh... Very heavy lifting stories. Yeah, I mean, and with housing, I mean, I think we kind of ambiently feel that we're in a housing crisis, right? That's not a surprise to anyone, whether you're trying to rent, whether you're trying to buy a house, like, it's pretty clear that there's a problem going on. But for this story, you talked with a bunch of experts about it. What sort of data points are they looking at to say like, yes, this really is a crisis? Yeah, I think the biggest one is um, homelessness numbers. I mean, you were talking about like we're in a housing market crisis and you can see it on the street. It's very visible, Mm -hmm. the increase in homelessness we've had. And experts say, yes, it's true. We have a pretty substantial increase in homelessness just in the last few years in Oregon. We've seen like a 22% increase in homelessness. And that's a pretty big indicator that the housing market isn't working. Another one is uh, housing prices. Those have skyrocketed in recent years. And I think that's a pretty big indicator, too, that this whole supply and demand system is working in favor of the suppliers. So Mm -hmm. when demand is high, like there are more home buyers or more home seekers on the market than there are homes available, sellers have the ability to increase their prices um, without repercussions because there will still be people willing to buy, even if it's a pretty low standard piece of housing. And in addition to that, when there are fewer homes on the market, there are fewer homes available to rent. Um, and so landlords can also increase rents with few repercussions. I mean, and I think it's 
it's so clear to anybody that's been trying to buy a house in the last couple of years. It's like housing was expensive. And then the pandemic happened and the housing prices went through the roof and got crazy for a little while. And now mortgage rates are up. And I was reading that like just a standard mortgage on average is $800 more a month now, just like with the rising rates. Oh, yeah, it's insane. And I mean, even people who were really waiting to buy a house, you know, a lot of millennials waited to buy a house until about the pandemic time when they suddenly had an increase in pay because incomes were increasing slightly during the pandemic, during the labor shortage. And then they got these uh, pandemic related emergency funds and that helped them save up for a mortgage. And that's kind of why we had a rush on home buying right at the start of the pandemic. Um, but in turn, that increased prices. And because of inflation, we have saw this increase in rates. And so at this point, if you were hoping to buy a house around the time of the pandemic and you haven't done it yet, right now is not a good time to do that. You might want to wait until the, the rates decrease. Wait until the earthquake. Is that wait until the big one hits? The housing flights, housing prices will go back down. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> That's one solution. All right. Great. We're done. We got it. We figured it out. Um, <laughs> I mean, like housing prices are high everywhere, though. You know, like across the country, this is obviously an issue. But one of the things that you point out in your story is that Oregon is also significantly underproducing. That like we are number four in terms of underproduction in the country. Um, one of the things you talk about is like our land use policies, specifically the urban growth boundary. You could imagine a Portland metro area that just sprawls for like miles and miles and miles and miles, and that it being one of these giant metropolitan areas like like Atlanta comes to mind. Like Denver, like Houston comes to mind as these places with these giant sort of never-ending suburbs, um, that Portland could be like that. And we're not that way because of these laws. But I'm guessing that the sort of through line there is like, you draw a line around a city and say you can't build outside of that. There's not going to be a lot of building happening <laughs> because the inner city gets really expensive, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, do you want to look like Houston or Atlanta or Southern California? I, I think it, you know, people can make the case that that isn't an efficient way to make use of land either, right? Like they, yeah. the roads are giant. It's really difficult to have public transportation. It's difficult to get anywhere efficiently. Traffic is horrible. Mm -hmm. And so really we have this movement right now of in-building instead of, I mean, we, we do have more legroom now to expand our urban growth boundaries in Oregon thanks to recent laws, but Policymakers are also focused on building up than out. You might have noticed a lot of new construction, like the, a lot of the single family homes being built now are what are called tall and skinnies. Yeah. The really tall, really skinny houses. <laughs> they make, <Yeah>. they make <laughs> re really efficient use of a small plot of land. Yeah, I call those weird roommate houses because everybody <laughs> I know who lives in one of those bought one of those houses. It was like a little bit more than they could afford. Uh huh. And then they needed a roommate to cover their mortgage. So that's like <laughs> I totally, I totally know someone like that. That's hilarious. <laughs> but this sort of brings us to the the question of of single family housing in general, and like you know why we had this love affair with single family housing, of you know having four walls and a yard and a porch, which is brilliant and wonderful and idyllic and like 
also super impractical, right? Like how has our attachment to single family housing in general and, and the racism behind that sort of led to where we're at today? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it definitely goes back to like 1950s, 60s, where we were kind of pushing this individualistic culture on people where you wanted to have the nuclear family and the successful husband and the kids and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in order to have that lifestyle. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel about it, too. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> in order to have that lifestyle, you need to have a nice house with a backyard and a front yard and a grass lawn that you water. It does nothing. It produces nothing for you. It just looks nice and eats up water. And so, yeah, it was definitely a, a showcase of your success um, if you were an American. But obviously that doesn't suit everyone. That no, Not everybody wants to live in a nice nuclear family. Not everyone has the capability of living in a nice nuclear family with their own house. And especially in a region that is getting more expensive because of this constraining urban growth boundary, a lot of people can't afford it. Can you really expect hundreds of thousands of people to live in a small designated area and let them all have their own single family home with a backyard and a front yard. It's just unrealistic. There's no way. Um, And so you mentioned the racism aspect of zoning laws. That kind of goes back to um, people were buying their homes, right? And they wanted their property values to increase. And in their eyes, if they allowed people who are low income or people of color into their neighborhoods, their property values would decrease. And so they created these zoning laws, basically making it so in this one neighborhood, you could only build single family homes. And these single family homes have to look a certain way and they have to cost a certain amount. And and because of that, they made it, they've kind of, they definitely vetted out anybody who was low income and anybody who was of color. And then a lot of times they, these early laws straight up had covenants that said you cannot sell or rent to people of color. Yeah. And that has had pretty longstanding impacts on our society today because those neighborhoods, those nice single family home neighborhoods, um, increased in value. And those families who owned property in those, val- in those neighborhoods were able to pass that generational wealth onto their kids, onto their grandkids, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. those families were able to grow wealth. Um, And because we prohibited that right to people of color, a lot of those families today are still living in poverty. Or live in neighborhoods that were destroyed by city planning in the 1970s and 60s in the name of, of urban renewal and urban growth as well. But that's... Exactly. Well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, let's talk about what we might be able to do to actually begin fixing some of these things. It's kind of an interesting year to talk about housing, though, because, you know, there is this recent analysis that says we need like half a million more housing new units in the next 20 years, which sounds insane. But there is some serious action happening. You know, we've seen the governor and the legislature sort of take a real bite at it this year. So I guess to your eye, is that 550,000 number remotely feasible? And like, what do you think about the, you know, the actions that have happened so far this year to sort of move us in that direction? Yeah. I mean, like you indicated, the governor earlier this year passed a few 
emergency declarations on, uh, you know, calling on the state to do stuff about homelessness and housing. And what among those orders, uh, Governor Kotek called on the state to increase its housing production by 80%, which is insane. <laughs> it is a tall order. It is a tall order. And it's, it's interesting because it, I mean, on its face, it implies that uh, builders just aren't building because they just don't feel like it. But I mean, if you think about it, a developer, it, it benefits them to increase housing because the more housing they build, they build, the more money they make. So there's obviously some reason. If you build a house, you get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's obviously a lot at play uh, for why we cannot increase housing. And in order to call on the state to increase housing, we have to address those factors that are prohibiting the state from increasing housing. And and, and policymakers are starting to do that, but it's going to take a really long time. And a, there are so many factors going into it. One researcher told me that, it, you know, we need a moonshot action. We need something just yeah. big and just bold and i'm not entirely sure that we have politicians who have the appetite for that sort of move right now or even the ability you know the financial ability to do that and it's not like we have like billions of dollars of surplus in the state budget or anything <laughs> oh, oh no wait actually we do <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm not i don't know i don't know how they make their decisions as far as like when to dig into the surplus but yeah it's not like you know we're in an emergency if that's emergency funding it seems like you know you may want to tap into that well i mean one thing we didn't really talk about yet is just the legislature right at the beginning of this very wacky legislative session passed about 200 million dollars in funds for housing in various ways to support the development of housing and to sort of try and fight against homelessness. I imagine that when the legislature puts out $200 million, it's not like we immediately see houses springing up in the next six months, though. The houses are built, right? They've already built all those houses with that money. <laughs> it takes a long time to build housing. So it's going to take a while. You know, even when they build that housing, it's not going to be affordable, right? Because of all the things that we talked about earlier, that's increasing housing prices because of labor shortages, building costs, land costs, system development fees. Naturally, whatever you build out of that is going to be expensive. And mm -hmm. uh, normal people, low-income people, middle-income people, low-income people aren't going to be able to afford that. Yeah. So like all of that's in the future, of course, though, like these new houses theoretically are going to come online at some point in the next several years, and that'll be great. But but I did sort of want to look back at, um, you know, this is something that the state has been working at in drips and drabs for a couple, for several years, you know, and, 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 and particularly thinking about the single family zoning laws that got passed in 2019. You know, we were just talking a little while ago about single family zoning and like why it's just sort of a, uh, a an outmoded idea. But the state did decide to get rid of dedicated single family zoning of like this land, this block can only be these white picket fence single family houses. We got rid of that back in 2019. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if we're seeing any effect from that four years later, and if that can tell us about anything about where we might be going over the next five years. It's definitely too soon to tell. I mean, I I don't know that anybody has really assessed the impacts that it's had in these few years. Mm. I personally doubt that there has been a major impact. It's only been a few years, and it takes 
decades to see the impacts from stuff like that, right? Like we already have these neighborhoods that expect single family homes. Mm -hmm. And so you may have heard about groups of people being very upset about a multifamily housing unit being plopped into their single family neighborhood. People aren't happy when that happens. Which one? I'm thinking of several yeah. ongoing things in the city at this very moment of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it happens just in casual conversation. I, I go to my hairstylist and she constantly complains about the multifamily housing unit that's getting built next door to her and how these people are going to be looking into her backyard and she's going to have no privacy. And that's, that's difficult. It's difficult for people to live with. You know, yeah. right? Like on an individual level, you get it. Like, oh, that sucks. You used to have this nice private backyard and now people are going to be peering in at you. But as on a societal level, um, we need to learn to live with people, right? Like we need to yeah. learn to live in a community where we see other people and we live close to other people. If you don't like that, you might might want to consider moving someplace where it's more sparsely populated. I mean, that's something that you write about in your story as well. You do sort of frame it um, with the story of some of these people who are looking at buying a home and found it cost prohibitive and are sort of looking at alternative ways of being like, well, what if we buy a house with our friends and we like still all live together, even though we're homeowners and like get the benefits of that. Um and it's kind of, I mean, I think for a lot of people who've spent their entire lives and careers trying to afford the down payment on this nice but insanely expensive home, that is a bit of a mental shift. But, like, it's also kind of a cool one. Like, oh, yeah, maybe we just get used to living closer together. Yeah, I think that's really the crux of it is that we don't know how to live with other people anymore. We don't like it. You know, we were taught we need to have our own individual self and and when there's somebody in your life who's toxic, you cut them out. But mm. relationships take a lot of work. And maybe at this point, we we haven't really flexed those muscles as well as we should have. And maybe it is better for us to know how to live with each other, um, or at least closer together so that we have a sense of community. So we're not all alone living in our own little bubbles. Um, that's easy for me to say. I live in my own house and I don't ever want to have roommates. Um, <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. So April, you just went on this huge philosophical, like, like beautiful story about how everyone should live next to each other. But you're like, but not for me. You should. You should do it. Not me. But, but not but not me. <laughs> but, but not April. Not in my backyard. That's what April says. I mean, to be fair, if I could... If I could build an ADU, I absolutely would. It's really expensive to do that. Can I move into your house, April? Like, you, you got a spare room? I'll pay. I'll pay. I'll pay the mortgage if if you cut me in on the mortgage. I'll. I have a two bedroom, like eight hundred square foot house. It's so tiny. You're welcome to live here with my huge zoo of animals if you want, but you know, <laughs> I don't think you would like it. Well, April, thanks for walking us through all of this. I mean, this is one of the major, huge complex issues that we're facing. Thanks for having me. Love talking housing. And finally, an update from Friday's show. I'd mentioned that Mike Schmidt's campaign had called out City Commissioner Rene Gonzalez for getting free office space for his campaign offices downtown. But what I'd missed is that he probably wasn't referring to Gonzalez at all. Because challenger Nathan Vasquez is also getting free office space downtown, thanks to a donation by a local developer. 
Thank you so much to the CityCast listener who pointed that out. That's all for us today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we would really love for you to tell your friends about it or leave a rating if you can. It helps us a ton. I'm John Natariani, in for Claudia Meza. We'll be back tomorrow morning with a lot more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. Slim's.